Shall I take your order, or do you need a minute? Ah, yes, I'll be ready. Just buying a car on Carvana. What? It's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do was answer a few questions. What? That's handy. Yeah. Now I'm customizing my down and monthly payments. What? That's an exquisite deal. And just like that, Carvana's delivering my car in a couple days. What? Oh, yeah. Uh, sorry. I'll have the burrito. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. Delivery fees may apply. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Buck Sexton Show. The deep dives, the long form. Appreciate all the comments you have about this format and how you're enjoying it. Um, And it's great for me, too, because now I get to sit and really enjoy the brilliance and the insights of so many guests without a commercial break jumping in from radio and limited to eight to ten minutes at a time. We got plenty of time with our folks, and we're going to need it this week for sure. Today, we've got our friend Bridge Colby with us. He is a principal at the Marathon Initiative. He served as the lead official in the development of the 2018 National Defense Strategy, which shifted the Pentagon's focus to China and is the author of a fantastic book, Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict. Wall Street Journal said one of the top 10 books of 2021, Mr. Bridge Colby, who I have also known. Fun fact, because we didn't get to talk about this on radio. Bridge and I used to do uh, shots of Cuervo at the same bars in D.C. <laughs> back when I was uh, a Cub CIA analyst. And Bridge was where were you in Yale Law School at the time? You're doing something, uh, something fancy. like that. I don't know. So something, uh, you know, one job or another. But gosh, you've you've uh, you've you've sold us out here, Buck. So. <laughs> I know now people know Bridge and I go go way back. We're talking like we're like 20, 20 years, years now, man. man. We're, we're kind of old. It's, we're we're kind of old. We're going on 20 years. We're looking good. I feel like we're looking all right. Could be worse, right. right? Yeah. <laughs> look, let's be honest. We kind of look like racquetball buddies or something. So, it, you know, it makes sense <laughs> that we go way back here. You know, we were we were uh, doubles partners on the grass courts. So, <laughs> right. uh, Bridge, we're going to turn our we'll, we'll go back to some fun stuff toward the end here. But I, I got to start with this. Um, Look, I, I never want to make. uh. I don't I'm not trying to make analysts fight with other analysts about these issues. Did you hear the I think Peter Zihan on the Rogan by any chance? You know, this guy who went on Rogan. I can give you a summary of what he says because he, he, he wanted a ch- sense. But yeah. 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 OK, so it's basically China's going to collapse. Idea, yeah. Right? China's going to collapse. China's super weak. China imports all like not all, but, you know, basically all of its food inputs politically so sclerotic that she can't get anything done. The population bomb is going to be their undoing and it's all going to fall apart within the next 10 years in China. That's the basic thesis. I just want to give that to you to give your sense of it because this guy's got a lot of obviously Rogan podcast is huge. A lot of attention right, for this. Right. What do you think? I mean, look, he could be right, but I think the job of our strategy, I mean, calling yourself a strategist is a little ridiculous, but I mean, if you'll bear with me for a second, the job of the strategist is to figure out what's the in the best interest of the country. And Peter Zihan could be right. Personally, I'm skeptical, but again, I could be wrong, but I think we need to cover prepare for the downside risk. And, you know, if he's right and we've prepared as if the Chinese are not going to fall apart, well, then we'll have probably spent too much money and maybe been a little more regressive than we might have needed to have been. But if he's wrong and we took his advice and we assumed that that was going to happen, uh, then we're in a world of hurt. So I just I don't I, I, I honestly that's that argument is not because, OK, so like the, it's like if there was another China out there, let's say there was a USSR, you know, 1950. So like right. at least allegedly we thought at the time a peer economy. Let's say there were two of them. 
And so there was like a real choice about whether or not you could focus on them. But Russia's one-tenth the economic size of China. So it's like, all right, well, we'll just cover down on that risk. And if he's right, great. You know, if, if the chemo works or whatever, great. You know, or it's, that's not the best analogy. But I, that's, you know, I mean, so that's the basic way. Now, if we're going to be a little bit, lean a little bit farther forward, and again, I, I don't think we need to on this point. I mean, I'll tell you, I mean, look, a lot of the numbers, people who have to make money for a living, still putting money into China, right? I'm not saying that's patriotic, yeah. but I'm saying, you know, they're probably not stupid and not just Americans. You know, a lot of people in Japan and Europe and so forth. So so I think, oh, by the way, where people put their money is always such an important indicator. I think it's one of the one of the best arguments when people talk about climate change. You know, I, I'm down here yeah, right. in, in, Miami, in Miami. I keep saying right. <laughs> uh, if I went up to somebody said, look, you know, you're on a 30 year mortgage right now. You just bought this house on the beach, but I'm going to take it off your hands at half price because climate change. You know, listen to Al Gore. Wait, Barack laugh. Obama's house in Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, Mount Martha's Vineyard. Now, I don't right? think they gave me a, a big break on that one either. They'll laugh in my face. So we all know what the reality is with that one. I think the money going into China is still an important indicator, though, to, to that end. But right. there, there does seem to be this. Uh, it, it's interesting to me. I remember um, back in the 90s, early 90s, really, it was. Japan is going to take over the world and, and specifically right. Japan was going to buy America as in own our corporations, own our real estate, our land, our food supply. And then we realized, oh, wait a second. Japan actually has huge demographic issues and is going to go into a long period of, of economic stagnation and real and decline. Um, I wonder how, how we, we look at this then and how we contextualize where we are vis-a-vis -vis China because I just brought up Peter Zihan. And look, I'm going to give the guy credit for it is very interesting, covers a lot of ground, yeah. you know, speaks eloquently. Uh, so I don't I'm not criticizing him. I just think it's interesting to hear. I, I, I want more really smart people and people like you, people who focus on these issues to be sharing the different perspectives and ideas on this. And sometimes that means disagreeing publicly so we can get closer to what the most likely reality is, the most likely truth that we face. Um, Gordon Chang, another good friend of mine. I'm sure you know Gordon. Yeah. I've known Gordon for over a decade now. I mean, he, he kind of smiles about it, but he wrote a book, I think, in the early 2000s, 90, The Coming, I think the coming Collapse. The 90s. Oh, it was the oh, 90s? The Coming yeah. Collapse. Well, yeah, was a, yeah, the, com, the Coming Collapse of, of China. Yeah. And we've been, right. I mean, and Gordon is super knowledgeable on China. He talked right. about it. I mean, right. he just, you know, you want you want to talk about Deng Xiaoping and you want to talk about, you know, uh, uh, Maoist Industrial Revolution and all these things. And he's an encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. But China hasn't collapsed. And it's been like 20 years since he wrote the book, something like that. So what is it with why, why is there this China's about to collapse, China's about to collapse when China for 30 years now overall has just gotten a whole lot wealthier and more influential? You know what I mean? It seems like there's a dissonance. Yeah, I mean, I think let me answer the Japan thing first. If they if they conk out where where Japan has has sort of flat plateaued in their debates about where the Japanese actually are, I think they'd be like two or three times the size of the American economy. So that that shouldn't give us too much comfort. I mean, bear in mind that Japan was, you know, I guess about half today, maybe a third of our population. So, I mean, it's just a different order of magnitude. China's 1.4 billion people. Yeah, it's declining, but there's still a lot of people, right? I mean, a lot more than we have. So I think that's we shouldn't take too much um, uh, too much uh, comfort from the, the Japan example in that respect. I mean, why do people do it? I mean, it's like the people who've predicted the 10 of the last, whatever, three recessions or something like that, right? I mean, it doesn't mean they're wrong, right? But I mean, the market analogy is not a bad one, actually, here, because timing is really important. You know, for instance, if we go drill down onto the Taiwan issue, if we're ready for a Taiwan fight in 2035 and the Chinese are ready in 2030, psh, doesn't matter. You know what I mean? So I think it's I mean, it, 
I, I worry that it's a little bit of wish fulfillment. Um, not wish is too strong. I mean, I don't want to say that about, about these guys, but I mean, it's a little bit, you know, and there's also, I will say how you look at it. Look, if you're trying to make an important analytical point and maybe get, you know, hit that bullseye in terms of like, let's say a really, you know, counter market bet, that's one thing. But if you're, if you're dealing with the American, you know, the fate of the American Republic, I think you should prepare more for, you know, kind of less risky uh, sort of bet. So the question that I'm going to pose to Bridge here in a second is, what does a Chinese invasion of Taiwan look like and what happens, which is really important and people are going to want to hear about that. But I want to step back from it for a second because I mentioned Bridge and I go way back to the Georgetown drinking days of our early 20s. I don't have any photos, unfortunately, of it. But if I did, you know what I would do with them? I would I would put them on legacy box. I would send them in on Legacy Box because then I could I could digitize them and t- and text in the bridge and say, my God, look at your haircut, look at mine. It's been twenty years. But see, that's the that's fun right. thing about Legacy Box. They can take old photos, video, Super Eight film, VHS tapes, and they can transfer it into digital format. So then it's safe forever. Because by the way, photos, old videotape. First of all, how do you even play that? And it degrades over time. So now is the time to transfer all your old media into new media, digital media. So it's safe. You can keep it and you can share it for many, many years to come. So I've done this before and it is such an easy process. They send you a box in the mail. You fill it with your stuff, your uh, VHS tape, Super 8 film, whatever you got. And then they hand transfer all of it into digital media. So things like a link in the cloud or even a thumb drive, they send it right back to you with all of your original media, too. So you keep all that as well. It's great. You got to get started in this. It's a great project for the beginning of the year. Go to LegacyBox.com slash buck to take advantage of this great discount offer because we're getting you fantastic pricing right now. LegacyBox.com slash buck. That's LegacyBox.com slash buck. And uh, you're going to love your Legacy Box stuff. Now that you've got this all squared away. Bridge, what happens if China... I'm, I Just at the broadest level top down and drill down it however you want we wake up we get we get word that china has invaded taiwan what does that look like and what happens i think just to be really straight i think it is a massive attack on taiwan and probably at this point an attack on u.s and probably japanese and maybe australian forces in at least in the region and here's why and i think you can see an illustration of why that makes sense relatively speaking uh, based on the Ukraine experience, which is the real lesson of Ukraine for Xi Jinping is not don't try, but if you're going to try, don't mess around. You know, and you could use a you could use a more barnyard epithet if you wanted. But I mean, that's really what what it is: is leave nothing to chance. If you were thinking of sending two missiles, send six. If you were thinking somebody was going to defect, kill him. And that's especially the case when you're dealing with something like an amphibious invasion. If you're crossing a land border in a flat territory, you can creep across, maybe come back, you know, go back, go back. That's not the that's not the case with an amphibious invasion. If you're going to do it, you got to go in. You got to go in big. And I think the the Chinese are if they haven't already understood that, I think they're going to understand. This is why I'm less worried about things like a blockade or a seizure of the offshore islands. I think what they're going to do, and they think the Americans are going to come in at this point. So that means get your blow in early and effectively. And that's something like, in effect, a Japanese attack in December and January 41, 42, but that could be more effective and more lasting than, than the Japanese attack was. How do we stack up versus Chinese 
uh, Chinese military capabilities in that theater in this circumstance, as in, you know, what do what are our trump cards or what are our advantages and, and what are theirs? Where are the areas where we've never had to handle their capabilities in a certain realm or certainly never come up against anything quite like it? And therefore, we could face the unexpected. Well, I think, I mean, in a sense, this is the trillion dollar question. And I think the bottom line would be that it is very competitive and it's trending in a bad direction, at least in this decade. I mean, that's part of the reasons why I'm so concerned about, say, 2027 or a little after, or maybe a little before, is because there's reason to think that that might be their optimal time to move. So if you look at back why wars have happened, they've often happened because an aggressor said, I may not be perfectly ready, but I'm never going to be readier relative to the enemy than I will be right now. So for instance, in 1939, the German high command was reluctant to go to war, but Hitler said, look, we're readier than the allies and they're rearming. So this is our best chance. So what are the fundamental advantages? I mean, there's a lot of technology going on. I'd say what you'd say on that is it's become a lot more competitive. The Chinese appear to have potentially moved ahead in some areas, like maybe hypersonics. There's concern about some elements of artificial intelligence. I think when you really boil it down, our advantage is they have to attack across 80 to 100 miles of water which is difficult, very difficult, again, and, and subordinate a country effectively that doesn't want to be subordinated. And their advantage is they're 100 miles and we're 5,000 miles. You know, we got a lot of forces in Japan, but the Western Pacific is a maritime theater. So it cuts both ways. Our wheelhouse traditionally as a military power over the last 100 years has been air, space, naval technology. I mean, if you look back, Britain, I mean, democracies, commercial republics like ours, we don't th like to throw people into the meat grinder. What we're better at is high capital intensive things like that. Chinese, continental power, willing to throw a lot of people into the meat grinder necessary. And I'm pretty confident that Xi Jinping would as well. Um, and that's their advantage, but they're also catching up in, in a lot of technology areas and they have the advantage of position. And as the aggressor, they may have the advantage of surprise. That's a big factor is whether we'll be able to detect. Now, we'll probably be able to see a lot of the things the Chinese are doing but we won't necessarily be able to discern that that's clearly an indicator of an attack. How do we go up against them right now to the degree that that we can discern this air to air? Because one thing that um, everybody that I know who's been in theater, even whether it was a civilian analyst uh, like me in Iraq and Afghanistan, I could see this. But talking to friends of mine who are who are frontline, who are who are soldiers, door kickers, special operations and, and all the rest. Air, total air superiority in theater is something that I think we have come to take for granted. Uh, the Ukrainians have found out, unfortunately, the hard way that when you don't have that, you've got some very big problems. How do we stack up against the Chinese in an air to air fight? That's a great question. I, I certainly don't think we're going to be able to have air dominance as we become accustomed to. And that's one of the things actually in the strategy back when I was in the Pentagon that we really tried to shift away from as a kind of cultural shift from, you know, when you served in, in the Middle East. And, and I briefly as well uh, for the State Department, that, you know, th there was total military dominance. There was no quite the Taliban or the, the Iraqi insurgents. Right. Weren't they weren't going to shoot down our C-130 right? with, yeah. with an F-18 or something. That wasn't happening. They didn't have artillery, basically, you know, maybe here and there. But, you know, I mean, effectively, right. Totally different situation. The Chinese are going to be probably attacking in space. They're, they have air to air interceptors. They're building stealth fighters. They're building nuclear powered submarines. Uh, the list goes on. They got missiles. I think it's going to be narrower. So what, what the, the smartest kind of military analysts and, and senior officers talk about 
is creating sort of openings of opportunity. And this is where really focusing on what we need to do is so important. A lot of this is going to be about killing their invasion fleet and their air, air armada that's delivering and sustaining forces on island. We're never going to, it's never going to be 1945, we're going to march into Berlin or Tokyo, sail into Tokyo Bay. It's going to be a defeat of the invasion short of total victory, but that's going to be enough. But I think the people that I talk to or the people who talk to the people I, uh, who are really out there at the tip of the spear, they don't take our uh, superiority for granted. And that's really important. I think that's one thing I've really, it makes me uncomfortable is when some of our senior political or military figures say, Hey, we never, nobody can, can, can compete with us. And it's like, wait a minute, that's not, that doesn't, that's not the kind of attitude we need. We need people who take nothing for granted because that's, you know, and even if, even if man for man, woman, whatever, woman for woman, that we we may be better, they got position numbers. They're probably willing to lose more people. So we, we, we really can't take anything for granted. How do the Taiwanese defense forces stack up in this situation? And is there a whole lot more we could be or should be doing for them to, to make Taiwan, you know, the porcupine, so to speak, that China's not going to want to handle? That is another critical question. In fact, the Taiwanese forces resolve and capability might be the biggest X factor we face. Because look, it's a lot of this is going to be in the sea and air and space, but at the end of the day, the Chinese are going to be trying to land a lot of forces on the island and defeat the Taiwanese ground force, the Taiwanese military, but particularly ground forces. And how tough they are, how willing they are to fight, that is a, and how skilled they are is a critical question. We've been pushing them for a while to shift towards what you could call an asymmetric defense, basically designed to defeat an invasion. And their former chief of defense, Admiral Li Ximin, has written a very good book, uh, I think thus far only in Chinese, arguing for this. There's a lot of resistance throughout the Taiwanese system, these moves. Actually, I think the political leadership is pretty supportive. Um, but, but that's a big question. It's one I'm trying to get a better sense of. But if they're not willing to fight hard and skillfully, this whole thing may just be untenable. Yeah. Um, what about uh, the U.S. response, as in will there definitely be one? Do you think that there's a real chance that, let's say, this, let's say it's go time for uh, the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Liberation Army, right, in five years, and they go for it. Uh, wh whoever the administration is at that point, let's just assume it's an you know, American president. We don't know who it is. Is there a chance that they just go, you know what, Taiwan, we wish you the best? There is a chance, and that, that worries me. Not because, And I think we've talked about this. I mean, stepping back, I, you know, I was against the Iraq War, against the intervention in Syria. I was against the long nation-building mission in, in Afghanistan. I'm worried about escalation in the context of Ukraine, et cetera. So I'm not, I'm not looking for an excuse to intervene. So I totally get that. In fact, in a sense, that's kind of where my gut sympathy is. But here's the reality. I mean, China is a superpower, and if it's looking to dominate Asia and from there become globally preeminent and impose itself on our way of life. And I think Americans really understand that. Taiwan matters a lot for that because if we, especially if we just back down, what are, you know, it's human nature. What are people going to say? Well, I'm not going to stick my neck out because the Americans are going to let me go. They're going to come up with another excuse to say why, you know, I'm the Philippines or I'm Vietnam, why, why they got to cut me off. And then after that, you know, they're going to isolate South Korea and Japan. And, it, you know, it sounds like the domino theory and the goddess into Vietnam, and I'm always conscious of that. But the domino theory has a kernel of truth, which is like you need to know whether you can trust somebody if you're going to stick your neck out. And that's really critical. And what I fear is that somebody would make that decision and, the th and then the situation would get so much worse because a lot of our allies or partners would cut a deal with China, but we'd still be stuck because we can't let them run the world, right? We can't let them run our own, you can run the Asian economy and then dominate us, but then we'd be in a far worse position. So my view is, 
laser focus on this. Like, and don't leave anything to chance. I mean, one of the things that I really don't like about what I think the administration is doing is they're kind of cutting it close. It's too cute. Yeah, we're focusing on Taiwan, but you know, we're also going to walk and chew gum at the same time and do Ukraine and not raise defense spending and all that. And it's like, no, 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 no. don't screw around. Don't get close to 50% because then the Chinese are more likely to do it and we're more likely to lose. Better to be at 75% because we can't get to 100% certainty, 75, 80%. And then the Chinese won't do it. And then we won't have to make this decision. But I think the rea- and the just one last point. Yeah. The other thing is if we screw around and, and, and uh, equivocate, Hey, you know, let's wait a week or two weeks. It'll be disastrous. So we've got to be like all in from the beginning. And he makes a huge military difference. So that's like, I just think we've got to be clear in our own mind. And and if we're clear and if we're capable, I think the Chinese will decide not to do it because Mao Zedong wanted to take over Taiwan, but he never did it. He was like the evilest guy who ever lived, one of them. And he decided not to do it because he knew he would fail. So is there a risk of immediate escalation against not just the U.S. force that would be responding to a a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, do you think they could go after us elsewhere? I mean, any any things, obviously, we have bases in the Pacific Theater. Hawaii's out there. It's a major concentration of U.S. military force, but it's a small island chain in the middle of the Pacific. I mean, do you think that that escalation is something to be concerned about or would China limit itself to, well, if you come into the, you know, if, if you come into the Taiwan Straits, it's fair game. But other than that, we're going to lay we're going to leave it there. Absolutely. Risk. I mean, I think at this point, given that they expect that Americans probably come in, then they'll probably attack throughout the Western Pacific, including against Japan, probably Guam, other places. And I think there's a real possibility, in fact, probability that they would do some attacks on the homeland of some kind. Now, I think those are likely to be probably matching to what we would do in attacks on the Chinese mainland, which would be necessary to be successful in my assessment. So attacks on military targets. I mean, military forces from the United States would be operating from probably Hawaii or would be supported from critical parts. And of course, the Chinese have nuclear weapons. But the reality, unfortunately, is that a homeland is not a sanctuary. And I don't think the Chinese are crazy. So we have ways of deterring them from doing things that would be really bloody minded. But again, nobody knows how a war like that would go. So I'm not confident about it. You know, I'm not, I'm not sanguine, but I think there are ways of fighting. And that's an, actually a big part of what I tried to argue in the book, as I think as you know, is how do we manage escalation in this context so we don't get in a place where we're, we're, our strategy is insane. We, we would be stupid to follow through on it because that's not credible. And if we got to that point, we shouldn't do it if it's crazy. How much could we count on the uh, literal states Japan, the Philippines, South Korea, you know, go go down the list. Right. Right. To be a meaningful uh, of meaningful assistance and perhaps even direct combatants in this Chinese invasion of Taiwan wargaming we're talking about. I think it depends. I think uh, Australia, we could count on a lot, probably, um, although they're far away. So limited impact. But um, Japan, increasingly, I think the Japanese have been very vocal over the last couple of years that they regard. Taiwan is a d- directly connected to their own security and independence. And I think they're right. I mean, it's if you, it, you know, in a way, Taiwan is part of the Japanese archipelago. I mean, the Senkakus, which they're neurologic about, are within, I believe, within visual range of Taiwan. So if Taiwan falls, the Japanese are in huge trouble. Now, the South Koreans, I think, are moving in the right direction or the Yun government. They've got their hands full with North Korea. So I think militarily, it would probably be more about access and political support. Philippines would be very important. I think the new government under President Marcos is an improvement. Um, a lot of that's about the ability to use Philippine territory access, et cetera. 
Again, I mean, look, and I think the Ukraine war again is an example here. People love a winner. If we're doing well, people are probably going to be more likely to kind of take some risk. And if they can, if they can be confident, if we're getting our tails kicked, people might cut a deal, you know, and, you know, Thailand's been an ally of the United States for decades, but in World War II, Thailand signed over to the Japanese really quickly and let them through to attack the, you know, British Burma and Malaya. So, I mean, people are going to go where the wind blows a little bit. So that's, that's why it's important that we be prepared. Now back to the internal dynamics in China for a moment here and the coming collapse of China that's been coming for a very long time, depending on which analysts you talk to. Is there a, so, so here, here's what I, what I wanted to pose to you, really. There, there was, I, I think it's fair to say, a bipartisan consensus, what, starting back in maybe you could roughly put it at the 80s, maybe some a little sooner, sooner a little after that. If we do a lot of trade with China, we help China get a whole lot wealthier, we get China in the WTO, that the political system there will liberalize and improve over time and, and that they'll be you know, more like a Western European power and less like a you know, despotic uh, totalitarian communist state that's very aggressive. I think that has not been true. Uh, that's Didn't pretty obvious like at that. this point, right? I think we could all agree on that. So that was a misperception that persisted for a very long time. We've allowed our near, we basically paid our near peer competitor to become what it is, right? Or, or I should say, you know, this is a point the Indians make when we criticize them is, hey, you guys built up the Chinese. Don't don't criticize us. Yeah. And now we're looking to the Indians and saying, hey, can you guys kind of help keep China in its box? And they're, you know, they, <laughs> right. they got their own problems, right? I mean, they're still right, dealing exactly. with the Pakistan issue. So what is what can be done to internally? Is there anything that can be done to internally make things better so that instead of could we win a short-term conflict with China to defend Taiwan? Would we even get into that conflict, that area, which we've already gone into? It's China doesn't want to do that anymore. You know, is, is that yeah. even something we could we could realistically hope and or push for? I don't think so. Again, it's possible. But I mean, there was a book by uh, this guy, New Yorker guy uh, uh, on China called The Age of Ambition. And it got at something. I didn't actually read the whole book. But was the, that the, Osnos? Uh, Do we remember? Yeah, Is it Osnos. The, Evan yeah. Osnos, yeah. But, See, I, but, I know. But the point was that that it describes something more fundamental about human nature which is like the Chinese are super powerful now and they expect to be, you know, what you hear from the Asian, the other Asian countries is they're like, you're a small country, behave accordingly. You know, listen to number one, we expect to be treated as a superpower essentially. So I don't see that going away. And it's not, I mean, people talk about the Marxist-Leninism and, and that is important, but it, it's not, I don't think it's actually the primary driver of why China is so, so dangerous. I think it's more ambition aggressiveness, expansive, you know, as people get stronger and if they don't face checks, I mean, it's the core of the American system. If they don't face checks and balances, then they are more likely to transgress others' interests. What I would, one thing I want to point out is that there, you're, you're, you're pointing to something that was very real. People like to deny it now, but it was obviously there, which was, you know, by trading with them, we will make them d democratic. Right. But there was a second part of that, which is, which was, even if they don't change, we will still be able to outcompete them. And I think this is really important point from a kind of new right perspective. I think both are, you know both of us have a similar kind of views on this, which is th that was the almost the more important part of the argument was like, 
even if we let them into the WTO and we let them take advantage of us, it doesn't matter because our, you know, our, our perfect free market system is so good, it'll outcompete them. And that, yeah, that, and they'll that just make our stuff has for, been disproved. Right. They'll right. just make our stuff for Walmart and, you know, they can they can keep just exactly. doing that. And, and, our, and our system's more competitive, so it'll be more efficient. It's like, no. And I think this is where the industrial policy stuff, whether one thinks industrial policy or government involvement in the economy is abstractly necessary. We don't live in the abstract world. We live in a world where the largest economy in the world, in PPP terms, is doing industrial policy on a massive scale. So it's like that's the world that we live in. And in terms of, I mean, you know, the actual, because I always think it's so interesting. If, if you go in and dive a little bit into uh, North Korean ideology, I think there's some interesting comparisons place, people make yeah. with, with, with North, yeah, North Korean ideology, obviously very heavily borrows from Stalinist, uh, the Stalinist Soviet Union, but also borrows very heavily from. Uh, from Imperial Japan and some of the racial, religious, uh, you know, ultra nationalism. I mean, right. you know, North Korea, it's not it's not like Marx came up with this and like, yeah, we're going to try that. Right. There, there's a, there's some different <laughs> China is even more different in a sense because you have the trappings of a communist regime. You have what, like hundreds, maybe up to a thousand people in China other than than she who make any decisions of any real importance within the party, right? Regionally, I mean, it's not, it's a pretty small group of people overall who, as I understand it, are making most of the major calls for within the Communist Party. And she, of course, sits atop the whole thing as, as the, uh, you know, the dictator. But is it a, is it like a mercantilist authoritarian society? I mean, what, because it's people are like, oh, communist China. Yes, technically, but obviously also. Not technically. There are billionaires walking around Beijing and right. Shanghai who are like, yeah, call me a commie. <laughs> exactly. With with entrepreneurial apps and so forth and yeah. ride sharing apps and stuff. I mean, look, the Marxist Leninism element is real. I actually think Xi Jinping himself thinks he's thinks of himself as a dedicated Marxist Leninist in some way. But remember, his central project is the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. It's not workers of the world unite. It's essentially a nationalistic project, and nationalism is an incredibly powerful force. I mean, to be fair, I usually think that we just call nationalism patriotism when we don't like it. So it's like the Chinese are super, super patriotic. I mean, not every Chinese, obviously, but it's, you know, and that's another thing is, you know, in Asia, the, the you know, today, I mean, still so much where a lot of our mental models are refracted through Europe, and there's this post whatever rules-based international order, blah, blah, blah. But like in Asia, nationalism is a good thing because nationalism was what allowed them to eject the Europeans who exploited them for several hundred years. And it allows nations to be strong and pursue their interests. The Indians are nationalists. The Japanese were nationalists. They kind of, but the Koreans are definitely both Koreans. The South yeah. Koreans too, they're very nationalistic. Vietnamese, they kicked us out, the French, you know, et cetera. So it's like, I, I don't, to me that that sort of, it's not inherently a bad thing, Chinese nationalism or patriotism, but we can't let it run roughshod. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. 
Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com news and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com news. Identity theft protection starts here. Something else I want to ask you. One thing I know from, you know, one of the things I, I learned in the CIA that was super effective, especially when you have to be moving around to whatever the issue is, right? This is the thing. You become inherently kind of a generalist. People are like, why? I did Iraq and then I did Afghanistan. Yeah, because skill set for one. Obama administration comes in after Bush. It was all Iraq. They moved to Afghanistan. And so you can't know everything. So you got to know the people who know. Right. If you can discern who actually knows, like you land on the ground in Kabul or whatever, you figure out pretty quickly who knows what the heck they're talking about. And, and you you can piece it together. It's kind of like the uh, the allegory of the cave. Right. Like You just you don't have yeah, to sure, see it. Right? You just have to know who can see it right, on, on right. the wall. And uh, on Russia, the people that I know who understand that country as as subject matter experts have been kind of banging this drum for years that we're always told that especially for the last whatever to six years. Uh, Putin's so evil, dicta- dictator, everyone hates him. He's hanging, you know, well, he's not hanging on by a thread, but, you know, if they could, they get rid of him in a second. And it's like, well, actually, whether it's fair to think this way or not, the Russian people in the post-Soviet collapse were completely humiliated through the 90s. Right. And the creation of a Russian middle class of sorts and certainly of a Russian elite that pads a lot of pockets and pays a lot of bribes, but even more so just more general economic has all occurred under Vladimir Putin's watch. And, and in essence, there's a very much a quid pro quo constituency of everyday Russians who are like, no, we actually like Putin. Now, that might have changed a bit in the Ukraine era, but that's a reality that people that I know who know Russia say never gets talked about. You know, it's just, oh, he's bad. He's a dictator. He stole the 2016 election for Trump. Like there's a very is a caricature of him. Yeah, he's a bad guy. Yeah, he's done terrible things, of course. But if you want to understand internally, I bring it up because in the context of China, I was in Beijing uh, in 2019. I was in Beijing. I was doing a, a, you know economic uh, kind of economic junket um, for uh, for a financial firm, and I went to China. I went to Beijing and Shanghai. And one thing that came across very clearly from discussions with some, to the degree that they were willing to you know talk to us openly and honestly is they the Chinese economy has been a miracle. Like we think of China as a totalitarian. Uh, a society that doesn't allow free speech, which is all true, and the Uyghurs and the terrible things. But they've also brought hundreds of millions of people out of agrarian subsistence, poverty, you know, agrarian subsistence mm-hmm. living and, and poverty, dire poverty. And so, like, there, there's actually more support for the Communist Party as it is than the West often realizes just because of the economic benefits. Like, how, how do you how do you view that? I know it's different in the Russian context, but I see some similarities. Well, but I think I have an analogy. And I mean, I think this this gets to something. I mean, just I've been kind of feeling this recently. I mean, like so much of the discourse on foreign policy is like it's all about a morality tale. And it's like I, I sometimes wonder, like, am I on crazy pills? Because like my view is I'm looking at this and trying to figure out what's in the best long term enlightened interest of the American people. Like, I don't mean to be moralistic or whatever about it. I'm saying that's just like my my frame. So if you're going to advance the interests of the American people, like if you're in, in, let's say we were the the trustee of the 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 fund of the of the American people, you wouldn't trust an investor who was like, 
oh my gosh, you know, we're going to get off like natural gas in like the next five years. Like you'd want somebody who actually could ensure that you sustain the money so the kids could go to college and whatever and grandma could retire and so forth, right? So the way you're looking at and the way I look at Russia and China is like, well, what is there? And you know what, ideally, what, what, how can you make it the best? But, but ultimately, like you have to accurately assess the environment and you were an intelligence officer, like in order to make good policy decisions. And, and so like Putin has become a sort of um, like, a, like a stock character, like paradise lost kind of thing, if we're going on the, liter- the literary route, you know, with Plato and stuff. I mean, it, it, like a morality play, like it, almost. And it's like, well, Putin is an evil guy. He's done evil things, like no question. But your point about the Russians is, you know, my understanding, and I don't approve of this. I hope Russia becomes a democracy and all that. But like they regard the 90s as an epic disaster mm-hmm. and whether they like Putin or whatever Russian yeah. political culture and, and, is and, and humiliating, by the way, which to the Russian mindset was it even, you know, they right. can put is worse. The, I was told this by a Polish friend of mine, and I think it was so astute. She said to me once, she says, Buck, and we we're talking about Putin. She goes, Buck, would you have to understand is that nothing brings the russians together like suffering but they're what? very but they're very proud exactly. so they're very proud and they've people. sacrificed they, a lot that's right so they, they, they will sacrifice so you can make it worthwhile that's right they will sacrifice they right but if you humiliate you know but but humiliation exactly. to their sense of honor that is that is the thing that they cannot abide right exactly and that uh, that's my impression i'm not a russian but i mean the interesting thing is the poles for instance my general impression who hate the russians and are against the invasion they understandably don't have any, yeah. They're, they're, they're not they don't have any delusions about the Russians. It's not a surprise that the friend who was telling you that is a pole because they don't they don't have like this idea that the Russians are suddenly going to turn over a new leaf and become a bunch of flower children. Now, on the Chinese, I think the point also is just like think of the mental map, like, you know, people like us who grew up. I mean, my you know, my parents went to college, whatever, like, you know, it was some there was the, the you know Vietnam and Watergate. But like, come on, if you're Chinese and you're in your 40s. That means your parents went through the uh, the Cultural Revolution, which was literally, I mean, really insane. I mean, mass, insane mass stuff. starvation, right. struggle sessions in public. I yeah, think Xi Jinping's own, own Xi Jinping father. himself, right? His mother. I mean, and his own family. Was, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you and know. so, and and your parents, and possibly you. Uh, excuse me, your grandparents and possibly your parents were there for the, the Great Leap Forward, which in which more people died, I think, in, than any other event in human history. It's up there. The civil the civil war and Japanese occupation, which any one of these is way beyond the conception of Americans as to the amount of suffering. You go back into the ninth century, you go Boxer Rebellion, the Taiping Rebellion, et cetera. So it's like, this is a, the, the scale of disaster and suffering is a, a totally different. And they also are very proud. Right. I mean, they considered themselves it was traditionally called the Middle Kingdom. I mean, this is a little bit of fortune cookie analysis on my part, but I think it's fundamentally true, which is that they expect to be respected and they feel like they put up with a lot. So the notion that I mean, there are people in China, I'm sure, who want to live in a democracy. But the question is, do they have the power? Do they have the the courage? I don't mean to say that in a moralistic way. Like, I don't I mean, the people, for instance, who protested against the covid stuff, who knows what happened to them? And to throw your life away in futility is, I mean, that's a lot. But I think you're right. I mean, this is the way we need to look at them. And then we need to try to push them in, in, in the direction that's, that's, that's most, most practical and, and, and alluring I mean, the fact, for us. The fact that the premier of China, Xi Jinping, was denounced by his own mother as part of the Cultural Revolution struggle sessions right. we're talking about, and his half-sister was essentially persecuted to death, 
by mobs saying that she was disloyal and she lived in a cave for a while to try yeah, to flee like five years, I think. yeah, yeah to f- in, try yeah. to flee um the maoist revolution i mean literally this guy lived in a cave yep. to avoid further persecution and murder of his own family by the communist system that he now leads i mean so when you try to get into the psychology a little bit of the people that are making the decisions here and- well that's just on this i was looking into this and i mean this is deeply rooted in the leninist party system and by the way the nationalists also had this element i mean the amount of suffering and sacrifice and brutality that's just built in. That's like in the warp and woof of the political culture there. There's an expression I used to go to China and people would say there's an anaconda wrapped around every chandelier in these nice rooms. That there's this like looming menace and, and potential for violence and death that we just we just discount. Thank God for our for our own fortune. But that's the kind of thing we're dealing with. I mean, the the, the Holodomor, uh, which I think now gets uh, people just have done a lot more Ukraine thinking and research for obvious reasons that. So people know more about the Holodomor, the forced starvation of of uh, millions of, of Ukrainians by the Soviets and 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 what happened there. But it's still not known, not that well known, I think, relative to the level of atrocity in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Chinese Communist Party and the mass starvation and the Great Famine, which occurred to your point within Memory of grandparents of people right now, right? I mean, right. you could have been of exactly. a generation where your parents, um, you know, or, or rather our, our grandparents' yeah, our, generation, yeah, what I mean our, to say, par- our grandparents. Our, your right. parents would have been alive, children. Right. Yeah, um, right? So, so that's, yeah. So that just shows how recent this was and how tens of millions of people died. Tens of yeah. millions of people died. Yeah. I think the, I mean, uh, the estimate is about 20 to, I think 20 to 40 is usually what they say, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, but yeah, and that's only one event. I mean, the Civil War and I mean, and and the Civil War, I, I threw this example on the Twitter, didn't, but like the, the, the PLA, the, the Communist Party Army, while they were towards the end of the Civil War, there was a nationalist. I mean, they really fought uh, hard, but the, 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 P, the Communist Army besieged an important city in Manchuria. And they said, we will let nationalist soldiers out, surrender basically, but not civilians. Even if civilians wanted to get out, they're not allowed out because it put more pressure on the food uh, situation inside the city. So, you know, hundreds, I don't know, tens of thousands of maybe over 100,000 civilians died. And that's just one particularly famous incident. Well, wasn't there also? Um, but, I mean, the, there's um, a tragedy to it too. A deep. Wasn't there the whole propaganda campaign? I mean, it's amazing. By the way, if people go back and look at some of this stuff, and you realize that this is in the middle of the 20th century, this is not yeah. a long, long time ago. I think mm-hmm. wasn't there the uh, the sparrows campaign where they convinced people that the grain shortage, there was an acute grain shortage because the sparrows were eating uh, too much grain, and so they went out and started they started telling villagers to go kill the sparrows. Because, you know, these little birds that were all over the place. And then they actually, I believe that at least this is maybe this is something of a, of a uh, you know, urban legend at this point. But then they, they they killed a lot of these birds. And then there was locusts or some other invasive species that right. made it even worse than it. Point being, they created all kinds of new ways to make a miserable situation even more miserable. And there was never any not only was there no political accountability for this. They're still in charge. I mean, effectively, still, yeah. the, safe, the system is still in charge. And so we're yeah. dealing with just a much wealthier version of a system that presided over catastrophe, mass starvation and repression on a scale that reaches the worst depths of what we saw through in, in the 20th century. And now we have Xi Jinping and they've got nukes and they want to go after Taiwan. So it feels like a, a rough situation. What, what is your what's the um, 
most positive view of how this is going to play out between us and China, say, over the next five to 10 years? Like what what's the we get it right and handle them in a way that shows some dexterity on the U.S. and an allied part? So it may not sound like it, but in a way, I'm kind of optimistic relative to some some people on the China issue, because I think a lot of this just boils down to the military balance. Because I, you know, there's a lot of talk and there's sort of the sophisticated, fancy view as like this is as much an economic and ideological and societal competition, yada, yada, yada. I actually don't think that's really true. I think what we're seeing is the United States itself, but many other countries diversifying away from China. I think we're going to continue trading with China. But people now know, hey, I don't want to have all my acetaminophen or ibuprofen or penicillin made in China, right? So that's gonna, that's gonna take place, right? And the Chinese are gonna have difficulty using their economic leverage or they don't have any soft power. Nobody wants to like turn into the society, right? So like they don't, they're gonna have, find it difficult to say, hey, Taiwan, give up and fall under our shadow or else we're gonna cut off, you know, your iPhones. Like it doesn't work and they've tried it. They're trying in Australia, it's not working. So that's actually, that makes me more sanguine. That's partially our own experience. I mean, you saw this when you were in the government. Our sanctions don't work that well. I mean, they're not even working that well against the Russians right now. Sanctions, so I good- find, is, is a talking point for diplomacy so it doesn't look toothless, basically. That's yeah, generally like what I mean. Class. It's what they understand. It's, it's, it's easy to use. The Congress can pass it. What that means, though, is the military piece. They, war and, and aggression can work, though. War can pay. I mean, the reason California and Texas and the southwestern states are American is because of a successful, aggressive war. Right. So that can work. But if we get that right, I actually think we'll be okay because the Chinese then will have an incentive as much as they would love to dominate the world. They're not going to have a plausible route to do it and they'll be forced to deal. And and I do like keep it simple, stupid, you know. Yeah, there there has been a, a recognition. One of the things I always say that Trump does not get nearly enough credit for is that with very few exceptions, I knew a few super trade policy nerds who even early in the Trump administration, you know, outside of the administration, but people just out there were saying, no, he's actually right about the China thing. Like, we, we have mm-hmm. to do something. We're just in a that's one-way trade. hundred years, that's going to be the thing, you know, yeah. China. And, and you had to call it out yeah. in, in an adversarial way, because otherwise it was just fluff. And, and it was a one-way trade war already. You know, you could either recognize yeah, exactly. what was going on, or you could just keep saying, no, we don't want to rock the boat. It's like they're rocking the yeah. boat all over the place. So Trump, for his all of his you know, pugnacious... Uh, uh, you know, inclinations was, I think, spot on on that. And you know this because the Biden administration has basically continued and with the with the Trump policies with regard to China. And he did that over the oh, trade wars lead to real wars. A lot of people on the right were very, oh, my gosh, mm-hmm. he's he's a maniac on this. So he was totally right on that. But I think it's also forced a I mean, and, and I want to ask you, do, do you think we've reached the point of enough of an understanding that domestic industry, especially for things like silicon chips, things that we need, you know, um, that we have to have it here, actually, that outsourcing production to a more developing economy to the degree that if they shut off their supply, we're screwed. That's not a good plan. Well, I, I hope so. I mean, again, then that gets back to that. Can we outcompete China if they're doing, as you say, one way trade war? I think that's exactly right. So, no, I mean, I think we can maintain some reliance there, but I think we should totally come bring bring uh, stuff back home. I think some of it is going to these these supply chains from what I can tell are so complex we're not going to bring the whole thing back. 
but it's more a matter of degree. We're going to bring more stuff back. And that's good for, I think, the kind of objectives that many across the political spectrum, I mean, people like us, I think, on the right, but, you know, the Roe Connors of the world and Matt Stoller's on the left, also want people to have good jobs and be able to support families and all that, or in cast, all that kind of thing. So that's good. The other thing that, that is really necessary on this front is, if I'm right, that you really got to get the military balance right. And by the way, that's another area where the Biden administration has been continuing the Trump administration. And I have to admit, in some ways, they're doing a better job. I mean, I kind of hate to admit it, but in terms of actually implementing that, they're carrying it forward. They're not going as fast as I would want and, and, and with the urgency and focus that I would want. But I can't deny that they actually are moving forward. But I wanna... what I would say is we need a defense industrial base that can produce at scale and quickly. We don't have it. And that's got to be at home or in really trusted places. Yeah. You know, I mean, Australia or Canada or whatever. Uh, by the way, I, I, I just wanted to look it up because I, I was trying to remember the name because I thought that would that would trigger uh, more remembrance of us. Yes, it was. It was the Great Leap Forward. So not really cultural yep. revolution era. Great Leap Forward, though, there was the four pests campaign. And there are these unbelievable posters that that existed uh, in, in Maoist China of the menace of the sparrow. It was sparrows, mosquitoes, rats and flies. And so they actually decided to. And this is because obviously the grain harvests were way down. They didn't have enough food for everybody. So this is leading into the Great Famine. Uh, they decided to go on this mass extermination campaign of the Eurasian tree sparrow, which is, you know, like pigeons and sparrows in America. Very, very common in China. Uh, and they killed so many of the sparrows that the locust population boomed and they had locust plagues. This actually happened. So that gives you a sense of. Um, it's, it's kind and of no a, kind of building. Yeah, it's, it's so. the Maoist uh, Chinese version of uh, you. Pro, you know, see, this book. I mean, I was going to say it's academic, but, you know, that's that's your wheelhouse of uh, seeing like a state by the guy at Yale where he just goes through. It's very dry, yeah. but he goes yeah. through these different occasions where you get historically these world class experts to just come up with a plan to like completely revolutionize, not in the crazy way we saw in the Soviet Union and China, where it was absolute catastrophe, because, by the way, those weren't experts you know these are these were these right. were thuggish yeah, right. thuggish commissars right. yeah. who, who couldn't add who were like yeah let's just like melt all the plowshares um but in, in the case of a uh, german one of the one of the case studies is german forestry and i think the well, i know this is super this is where we get to the sexy stuff on this podcast where everyone's <laughs> like yeah sign me up german forestry in i think it was the mid 19th century and they they decided they had this whole campaign you know across you know the german states but this idea caught, caught hold in Germany of you need to plant one kind of tree symmetrically in rows in a way that will increase the yield. And, you know, and this is basically mathematize and systematize the planting of trees. And they had this whole thing. And what they didn't realize mm -hmm. is that made them if you get one kind of pest for that tree, you are screwed. You're if you don't have underbrush, yeah. if you don't have, you know, you don't have yeah. the other plant. Anyway, it was a total and utter disaster. And the smartest people in forestry management in the world at that time thought this was going to be a great idea so that's what that book goes into which i always thought was so interesting but yeah the maoist um some of the the maoist propaganda posters about the uh, sparrows military i want to go back to u.s military for a second um what are what do we need to do differently than what is being done right now to prepare for the next one i mean the biggest cliche we're talking about military strategy um you know, whether you're from from Clausewitz to Mike Tyson, everybody has a plan until they're punched in the face. Right. I mean, the biggest cliche I think of all is, you know, everyone's always preparing to fight the last war. Right. So we know we're not going to be doing low intensity counterinsurgency operations as the primary U.S. national security focus for the next 20 years. We just 
because we're not going to do right. it, right? That's just not how right. we might pay somebody else to do it. We might, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I, I certainly hope yeah, not. That's actually it. a better. Yeah. That's a better way of putting it. Yeah. What do we need to do to prepare for the actual situations we're seeing? For example, I mean, Russia, Ukraine. The possibility of that spiraling is, I think, low, but it is. It does exist. What right. do we need to do differently from military preparedness standpoint? So I actually think we're not preparing for the last war. We're preparing for what we think the, the the next war will be. I mean, and we in the in the Trump administration, we shifted the focus to China and more focus on Taiwan, and they've carried that forward and and, ex, and in, in a lot of ways intensified it under this administration. So um, there is a lot of bureaucracy and tail inertia, blah blah blah. That that's all. What I would say, the bottom line is is I think it's a matter of scale and urgency. So here's the analogy that I use. You know, you've gotten a diagnosis from your doctor that you're you know, acute heart disease and you need to lose a lot of weight, and otherwise you're you know you're you're potentially gonna gonna croak. And we are ba- you know you basically have said, I'm gonna do the diet. I'm doing a diet. I cut out you know my dessert after lunch, uh, but I'm still having some ice cream after dinner and I'm eating the French fries. And it's this, like this sounds like still... my diet, by the way. But I keep going. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, that's the thing. I actually been thinking about it because it's like I'm trying to think of the theory of change because. Fundamentally, like getting back to that 50 percent or 45 percent, like there was a war game that was done that got a lot of press recently by the Center for Strategic International Studies. And I had some problems with it. I think it, it was too confident in our ability. Most of the classified war gaming by their own admission is more is more pessimistic. Um, but, you know, even they in this optimistic said it, it would be an absolute slugfest. We'd lose more people and things uh, than we've lost since since World War Two. And so my feeling is like, well, why are we even getting close to that? Why are we even why are we even getting close to that point? And people say, you know, for instance, oh, our defense industrial base is too slow or uh, we can't, you know, reduce forces in Europe while the Ukraine war. We can't reduce force in the CENTCOM. And it's like, well, wait, isn't this our priority? You know, the 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 the, the, the Chinese are the one who are the heart attack. These other things are like, uh, you know, stub toe or I mean, worse than that, maybe they're a broken bone. But that's the problem that we have to fix. And if there's something if there's a problem with fixing it, if there's a fundamental issue, for instance, the defense industrial base, we need to produce more munitions. It's obvious. So the administration's saying, okay, we're going to authorize the defense primes to get multi-year contracts. Oh, that's probably part of it. But obviously the whole model is insufficient if this is where we are now. So why doesn't the president get on national television and say, here's what we need. And I'm going to sign these executive orders. He's willing to do it over Ukraine. You know, our con- congressional leadership, a lot of them are willing to do over Ukraine. Why don't we do it over, over China? That's so much more important. So that is the kind of, that I think is the, it's not that we're doing the wrong things, you know, the, the specifics. And I mean, you can argue, but nobody really knows how a war like that would, what the, you know, we, pro, we need more anti-ship missiles. That's an obvious. We need more targeting apparatus, space and air breathing, et cetera. Yes, we know that, but, but that's not solved in micro movements. We've made the kind of movements we can. We now need to have fundamental muscle movements and that requires political will. What worries you and maybe this would be uh or you know i'm going to be wrapping up here with you in in a couple minutes but what worries you um such that if you had the attention of the biden apparatus right so joe biden but really also the people around him who are making more of the national security decisions however that shakes out not not china russia ukraine or military preparedness we've talked about that but if you if they if, okay. if there was something else that you're going to say you really need to pay attention to and this is about what's best for the country this isn't some you know partisan shot in the ribs when old man joe's not paying attention is there anything that comes to mind for you is there anything where you're like i worry about what can happen or what will happen in this area on this issue or in this realm i, I mean obviously the, you know the the biggest ones we've already hit china russia ukraine 
and I think just general military preparedness. But is there any, you know, are, are you worried about something happening with Iran going nuclear? Are you worried about the cartels and what it could mean just for, you know, destabilization along the border? I mean, you, you tell me, but is there anything? What would you be well, like, guys, we need to we need to spend some time on this? I look at power, so there's nothing in the same order of magnitude. And I mean, I, you know, I don't want another pandemic, obviously, things like that. I mean, look, I think the immigration issue <clears throat> and the potential for cartels, I don't think it's I don't know why we would just rule out the potential to use. I don't know why we would just rule out the potential to use military force under any circumstances. I'm not saying we should, but I think it's worth considering. I mean, that's a huge harm to the American people. And that seems something that and I don't think this administration has been good on it. Within the security realm, I think the one that's probably, I mean, I think it's possible the Israelis will go after the Iranian program in the near term. I think there's ways to handle that, particularly by supporting the Israelis and the, and the uh, you know, the Abraham Accords crowd. I think the North Korea situation is really, um, it's untenable to keep going like it is because they're going to develop the ability to get out beyond our missile defenses, which don't work well enough to, to keep up with them. And they're, they're pretty crazy. And um, the South Koreans are making noises. And I think we need to have a kind of a rethink of, of what that is. I, I, think, I, think there are, I think there are things that we could do, you know. Um, I mean, I don't, like, I'll, I'll, put, I'll put it to you bluntly. I don't think at the end of the day, we don't want proliferation to our allies. But that is not the worst thing. It's not as bad as a North Korean nuclear attack on the American homeland. It's not as bad as breaking our alliance with South Korea. So, you know, we need to put we need to have like a fundamental rethink of our situation in North Korea. And at the end of the day, look, your point about the North Koreans, the Juche model is basically in super independence nationalism. Well, that applies to China. Actually, I didn't know this until recently, but the North Koreans kicked out the Chinese in the late 50s from North Korea after the Chinese had intervened and saved North Korea from the U.S. and the South Koreans and the U.N. forces. So I'm not I'm not optimistic about North Korea, but I don't think we can continue going along the same trajectory that we've been going on and bridge colby sir phenomenal as always so so appreciative of you joining me here on the uh on the buck sexton show um your book is great where uh thank you very much tell, tell people the book where can they go get it great uh really delighted to be with you buck um the book is the strategy of denial american defense in an age of great power conflict you can find it on amazon the yale university website uh and i'm on twitter at elbridge colby um and uh you know look forward to hearing from uh, any of the listeners who want to follow up yeah please to tweet tweet questions and thoughts to bridge and my friend it's been 20 years here we are it's good to talk to you man. here we Thanks are for being here <laughs> you too thanks man hey there it's ryan seacrest for safeway head in store and shop for all your favorite personal care essentials to earn four times rewards points shop for products from olay always gillette Vix and Crest. Plus, check out new items like Mr. Clean Magic Eraser Ultra Thick Multi-Surface Cleaner. No more sponges or other cleaning products needed. And Head & Shoulders Bare Soothing Hydration Shampoo, a new kind of anti-dandruff shampoo with only nine ingredients. Offer expires March 26. Restrictions apply. Promotions may vary. Visit Safeway.com for more details.